Well, thanks everyone for coming uh, to this uh, episode of the Sport and Leisure History Seminar. Um, this evening we have Jeremy Longstar with us, um, who's an independent scholar and um, who's written extensively uh, about the history of cricket and most recently the history of Yorkshire cricket. Um, his book, again taken seriously, uh, deals with uh, 19th century Yorkshire cricket. And he's going to be talking to us uh, today about um, uh, building the foundations of Yorkshire's cricketing power, 1822 to 1893. So over to you, Jeremy. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Raf. Um, it's a pleasure to be speaking here this evening. Um, and I'm going to talk, uh, as you say, about the, uh, the development of cricket in Yorkshire in the 19th century. Uh, and it's based on research for, for two recently published uh, books, and the research for another, which will uh, hopefully appear uh, next year. I want to make three points um, in my talk. Um, firstly, I just want to make a sort of myth methodological point about the importance of newspapers, and particularly the, the British Newspaper Archive for studying Victorian sport. Secondly, I want to um, argue that it was only after infighting between different parts of Yorkshire was overcome, that the full potential of the county's cricketing power was unleashed at the end of the 19th century. Uh, and this led on to Yorkshire County Cricket Club becoming one of the most successful organisations in any sport over the next 75 years. Um, and thirdly, I want to highlight the important role played by a small number of working men in helping cricket to uh, develop into a commercial sport in the mid-Victorian period. Uh, and that's a role really which I think has been largely forgotten. So to start with, uh, I'd like to say a little bit about the use of newspapers as sources uh, and the value of the British Newspaper Archive in particular, without which I think it's safe to say that my books would not and could not have been written. So when examining local cricket in the 19th century, newspapers are often the only source available. Uh, I did track down some small, a small number of club minute books from the period, uh, and they're wonderful documents, but they're, they're pretty few and far between, uh, and they're often not very detailed or illuminating, uh, and not, often not very easy to read. Um, there are clearly drawbacks to using newspapers. Uh, there may, for example, be gaps in the series which remain or are currently available. And we've got no idea whether the details are accurate and the reporting may be very biased. Uh, and that was something that was certainly recognised in the case of, for example, the Bradford Observer newspaper in the 1860s, where the sports editor actually began sending his own correspondence to game un games undercover. And he stopped accepting uh, very self-serving reports from the clubs themselves. Pressure of space may mean the reports are short and stories were given very little space. It's therefore you know, a bit of a lottery as to what was and what wasn't reported. And the content of reporting can be really dry. So it wasn't really until the 1870s and 1880s, for example, that there are um, many interviews with players which became a feature of, of 20th century uh, sports reporting. Nevertheless, for those researching the 19th century, newspapers are often all we have, and I think there's some really great strengths as sources and as means of trying to understand developments in that period. And this therefore means that efforts to safeguard these documents and to make them accessible, accessible both in terms of making them as widely available as possible, but also in terms of enabling researchers to search them as easily as possible, are to be welcomed. And I'll just put on the screen now, um, a slide shows a couple of typical uh, cricket notices from newspapers from the 1830s. Um, on the left, we see a, a report of a match, and the score is pretty much laid out as it would be today. And lots of details in the, in the report above about the match host and about the post-match meal. So a real sort of sense of, sort of you know, a social uh, gathering. 
And on the right, um, you know, we can see a typical challenge uh, that was very common in newspapers in the 1830s and 1840s. So it's full of details of the money involved in the match, the basis for the challenge, and a lot of bragging that led, led to the match between, uh, to, between two teams there. That's in the sort of Halifax, uh, Bradford area. I want to highlight the value of the British Newspaper Archive website. It's currently at around 30 million pages, uh, so it's pretty extensive. And I think in a practical sense, it goes without saying that without the OnLive archive, it's not be possible to search through so much material as quickly and compare and contrast uh, different papers from the same day, for example, uh, and eliminate lots of redundant, non-effective research time. Because the online archive has a long series of newspapers titles, it's great for tracking trends and high-level developments. So by making a systematic trawl of papers, it's possible to see changes taking place over time in how the game was played and how it was reported. It's possible to pick up data from a number of years, for example, you know, membership figures from successive club AGMs and so on. And it's also an opportunity to identify slow shifts in the way that the game um, grew. So, for example, I've been interested recently in the spread of professionalism in the early 1850s. Um, I was able to uh, track the impact of the appointment of a, of, of a professional in, uh, in one cricket club, Beverly, in, in, in East Yorkshire in the 1850s, really through a series of stages which which showed the impact of the individual on the performance of his own side. He acted as a sort of a magnet to attract new members. Uh, his presence uh, in the side stimulated other teams to appoint a professional to be able to compete and so on. Um, and at the same time, it improved the quality of the, the playing service because this individual professional was also the, the groundsman. Another crucial benefit of the, the, the British Newspaper Archive is the ability to search by specific words, which helps the researcher really to, to get straight to the topics of interest and not waste a lot of time uh, in, in rather redundant scanning. And by searching for particular words, they gained a fresh perspective in a number of ways. So whereas previously when I was limited, uh, when I limited my physical search of bound volumes of newspapers to the period between April and September, and you know, my assumption was, well, that's when cricket was played, isn't it? Um, and I assumed that that was when I was most likely to, to, to sort of gather material I was looking for. Um, but the online archive makes it possible to search right across the whole year. And through this, I discovered that cricket was actually frequently played in the autumn and indeed the winter in the early decades of the 19th century, throughout the winter in, 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 in some cases. And that was almost certainly because games were primarily used for betting purposes. So it really didn't matter that it wasn't nice and sunny. People were actually um, primarily interested in, 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 in wages on the, on the competition. And whereas previously I'd limited my search to the sports report, to sports reporting, just the sections of the newspaper which covered sport, uh, in order to try and keep the research manageable, the online searchable uh, newspapers uh, enable me to really to find lots of small but often really important references to cricket. Um, and they come up in places like the court reports. And this really highlighted uh, to me quite how much effort was being made in the first half of the 19th century to try and control how the game was played. Mm. And so, for example, you see a lot of reports of boys being um, up in front of the magistrates for damaging property, infringements of turnpike acts, uh, and uh, lots of attempts to, to ban cricket on the Sabbath. So you get a, a whole different perspective, really, on the game. Victorian newspapers are also a particularly good source uh, for research because reporters of that era are remarkably verbose. Uh, and they include lots and lots of information way beyond the details of the game, uh, you know, about the crowds, the arrangements for the matches, the finances, the facilities, the patrons and supporters and so on. AGMs are also a great source of information about the internal workings of a club, and they're often reported at, uh, at great length. So it's the granular detail, really, that helped me to, to gain a real sense of the place of the cricket club in Victorian society. 
It's also the case that the newspapers, um, uh, being able to search them in this way, gives access to stories that, in many cases, have actually not been heard for about 200 years. Um, and I hope that helps to make um, my book, uh, again, taken seriously, uh, you know, fresh. So my chapter in, this, in, in the book about the place of the game in Yorkshire in the early 19th century highlighted lots and lots of little stories. So kind of vignettes which illustrated quite how enthusiastic people were about cricket at a really early stage of the game's development. And when the game was actually organised in a much more sophisticated way than many histories give credit for. So some examples at random. Um, a rep great report of a, of, a, of a man in Leeds in 1825 who took his employer to court when he was sacked for being absent from his job and he'd left other men unsupervised in order that he'd play cricket. Um, the work search diary of a man in Sheffield in 1830, which was published in a local paper, uh, and he played cricket with his unemployed friends to distract themselves, as, as he put it, how, from how hungry they were. And then a lovely story from 1874 of a court case when a woman sued her fiancé for breach of promise of marriage after he refused to marry her because she was not sufficiently interested in cricket. Uh, these might sound trivial, but actually they all help to give a sense of the significance of the game in the 19th century. And just as they provide insights in the sort of minutiae uh, of, of life, so the newspapers also help to set cricket in the, uh, in the wider context of everyday life in Yorkshire society. So, for example, following the Crimean War, some cricket clubs in Yorkshire established volunteer rifle clubs in response to the growing fear of further war and possible invasion. Uh, and in really fascinating, in 1879, it was the cricket clubs in Horsforth near Leeds which organised soup kitchens during the bad winter and the economic downturn when many unemployed people um, in the area and they handed out huge amounts of food to the needy. Uh, again, another sign of how significant and well-organised cricket clubs have become in Victorian society. I think crucially, newspapers help to provide a wider perspective on the game and the chapters in the book on Yorkshire cricket crowds uh, and also the role of the press in 19th century uh, cricket uh, could not have been done without them. And I think without taking them into account, it's hard to understand how the game developed as it did. Press played a, a crucial role in the development of cricket in Yorkshire. Um, newspapers uh, included growing coverage of the game, which communicated very clearly that it was a really important part of local life and it was a healthy and worthwhile activity to be involved with. Editors gave increasing space to scores and cricket news, and clubs used the press to make their challenges to other teams or to advertise their ability to play um, uh, games in the days before organised fixture lists for leagues and cup competitions. And just as another indication of, of, of quite how um, coverage in newspapers had, uh, had developed by the 1870s, on the screen here now is, a, is a, an excerpt from uh, the Sheffield Daily Telegraph. And here the newspaper sports editor is bragging about the, uh, the really excellent uh, full reporting service that he's promising his readers in 1875. Um, and this, uh, this full service includes lots of expert reporters and very wide coverage of both local matches and, and first-class uh, games. So in particular, I think easy access to newspapers helps us, helps us to reach much further back into the history of the game, which has been much neglected or indeed assumed not really to exist. I think we see just how complex and sophisticated was the cricket world back in the 1830s and 1840s, Many clubs had all kinds of features. Many sides, for example, wore specially made uniforms. Many clubs had their counts and they had them audited. We see serious competitions between clubs in the 1840s to be considered the best in the county. We find discussions as early as the 1820s about establishing a county club and paying for all the best players in the county to come together. And this was something that didn't happen for another 40 years. 
so I think it helps us not to see that anything before about 1860, you know, is, is, is a sort of misty prehistory. So my book emphasises this imperative to look at the grassroots game to understand how it changed at all levels uh, and how elite cricket built upon the development of the local game. And as far as I'm concerned, at the moment, newspapers really are the only source we have for such a nuanced view. So turning to the second issue that I wanted to focus on, um, in my book, uh, again taken seriously, the book looks at the development of, of cricket between 1822, which uh, was when the first commercial ground was established in Yorkshire, in, in Sheffield, uh, and 1893, when Yorkshire County Cricket Club won the county championship. And really, that sort of kick-started a long period of success, stretching right through to the late 1960s. Yorkshire County Cricket Club is one of the most successful sporting organisations in the world in any sport. It's won more trophies than any other English cricket county. It's contributed more players to the English international sides than any other county. There have been several histories of Yorkshire County Cricket Club written as records of matches and personalities. But my book's really, um, I think, the first attempt to explain how the game developed in Yorkshire and how the county club came into being uh, in the second half of the, uh, the century. And in summary... Um, what I would argue is that it was only with the ending of internal differences between different parts of Yorkshire in the early 1890s that the full power of Yorkshire cricket could be unleashed, a strength that had been growing since the 1820s. I therefore see the early 1890s as a turning point in the history of Yorkshire cricket. It was then that the governance of the county club was reformed in 1892-93 and put on a much more county-wide footing. Professional leagues took off in many areas and so generated a long stream of top-quality new talent used to hard-fought cricket. It was also the time when Headingley in Leeds was opened as another fine ground to contest with Bramwell Lane in Sheffield to be the centre of Yorkshire cricket. The decades that followed 1893 saw several glorious periods of success for the club, the late 1890s and early 1900s, the, the era of Hurst and Rhodes, the 1920s, the era of Holmes and Sutcliffe, the 1930s when the side of Verity, Bowes and Leyland only failed to win the county title three times in the decade before the war, and the 1960s, the era of close boycott and Truman, when first-class success was also matched by triumphs in the newly established one-day game. So although they didn't know it, the Yorkshire team of 1893 um, was bringing to an end several decades of underachievement and false dawns and was setting out on the road to a long period of sporting greatness. And as well as being more successful in the past, from the mid-1890s onwards, Yorkshire County Cricket Club had a different feel in other ways. So there was, a, there was broader representation on the county committee from right across the county and less domination of one place, that was Sheffield. Uh, and that had been the case since the 1820s. And this helped the club identify players from right across the county. There was also a greater contribution made by more, a more talented breed of amateur players who played for Yorkshire in the late 1890s. And together, when these were... Um, brought together with some really top-quality professional players like Rhodes and Hurst. They made up a side that looked markedly different, a much richer mix than those that had been put out in the 1860s, 1870s and 1880s. And they were all led by Lord Hawke, uh, who captained Yorkshire from 1883 to 1910 and helped to establish Yorkshire as the premier club in the country. But the level of success that these players achieved did not just happen, and it was the product of de decades of development which is described in my book. Yorkshire County Cricket Club was established in 1863, but it took 30 years for it to be a fully representative club. The momentum that started with the 1893 Championship triumph was the product of the resolution of internal differences within the county, 
and also the development of strongly competitive cricket, which had its roots in the early decades of the 19th century. It was a long and involved story, which in my book goes back to the early 1820s, when cricket flourished in Sheffield and Leeds, Ripon and other places, having been brought um, to the county from the south of England. And it really sort of entered into the lives of people uh, uh, from, from then onwards um, in all walks of life. So, you know, teams were established for men who worked in mills, dye works, manufacturers, mechanics and barristers set up clubs, church and temperance movement supporters had teams, as did those who fre frequented public houses. Cricket was linked with all manner of events. Reports from the hustings at the 1835 parliamentary election in Wakefield, for example, mention banners opposed to Sunday cricket. Children played cricket amongst those attending Chartist rallies in Bradford in 1848. Cricket was also part of the celebrations in some places for Queen Victoria's coronation in 1838. There was then a bit of a period of apparent decline in some places with endless forming and reforming of clubs. Then the inspiration provided by the All England Eleven and other touring sides made up of some of the greatest players of the day, which visited Yorkshire from the late 1840s built on the existing, if somewhat patchy, interest in cricket in the county. And it really stimulated a sort of step change in the popularity of the game. These commercial adventurers played against local sides of 22 men throughout the 1850s and 1860s, drawing large crowds, popularising cricket, and demonstrating to hundreds of thousands of people how the game could be played. A further surge of interest in cricket in the 1860s and early 1870s generated in part by the unprecedented performances of W.G. Grace and the, the sort of gradual shift away from the domination of cricket by the ball, led to a significant increase in investment in cricket clubs in Yorkshire. Greater expectations of what was required for a high-performing cricket club, uh, in particular a well-tended ground with a flat playing surface, uh, strong fixture list perhaps requiring travel on the expanding railway network, and skilled paid assistance of professional players, allied to the increasingly competitive spirit in which cricket was played, created the demand for professionals and increased the opportunities for better players to actually make a living from the game. And this in turn provided many men with the incentive to refine their skills and the existence of a growing cadre of professional cricketers, men who were happy to escape at least for a while a mundane working life, helped to raise standards of club cricket in the county. And I put on the screen a, a photograph of, uh, it's actually uh, a very early cricket photograph from the 1850s um, of a, uh, a match being played uh, on Beverly Westwood in the uh, East Riding of Yorkshire. In general, the cost, though, of, of running an organisation with such facilities and, and the sort of professional assistance which um, ex uh, people felt was necessary exceeded the amount of money that could easily be raised solely from those people who played the game or the club's immediate sponsors. So officials therefore sought other ways of generating income such as through athletic sports festivals and galas and so on, or by attracting wealthier patrons. And this very valuably raised the profile of a cricket club in a local community, but it also ensured that such clubs needed to protect their reputation by eradicating some of the more turbulent behaviour which had characterised the game since its earliest days. And this was often associated with biased umpiring decisions or with the prospect of a team losing a game and its associated stakes and bets. Uh, and this desire um, by cricket clubs to purge the game of some of the disorderly aspects is entirely in keeping with developments elsewhere in Victorian society to sort of cultivate a sense of respectability. So the need to generate more interest in the game at the time when other activities such as cycling or football were also finding audiences at the end of the 1870s also led to the creation in Yorkshire of better organised and more competitive forms of cricket and in particular 
uh, initially cup competitions and later uh, leagues. And this helped to kill off what we might call exhibition cricket. And these were sort of single wicket matches between two players which had been popular in the 1840s and 1850s. Or, some, or these unequal games between the professional touring sides and local teams, which were increasingly found wanting by the paying public and which were heavily associated with betting. And while not necessarily welcomed by traditionalists as being in keeping with the spirit of the game, the leagues that emerged first in Yorkshire in the early 1890s provided the discipline and the structure within which higher quality cricket could be played. Timekeeping could be improved, poor umpiring reduced and unruly behaviour controlled. And it began to generate generations of fine players schooled in seeing hard-fought games through to a conclusion. Yet if these developments did eventually work their way through towards the end of the 19th century in Yorkshire, they do raise the question, why did it take until the 1890s for such forces to come together? Yorkshire cricket, and especially cricketers from Sheffield, were an acknowledged force in English cricket from the 1820s, with players like Tom Marsden of Sheffield admired throughout the country. Once the railway network expanded from the 1830s onwards, there were fewer reasons why the best Yorkshire players could not play in games at some distance from home, or could come together to represent the whole county, a concept that was not unknown in the 1820s. Nevertheless, it took most of the century for the potential to be fulfilled. The reason for the delay uh, is, in my, in my view, it had its roots in the way in which cricket developed in the three different ridings of Yorkshire. So there's the very rural East Riding, the rapidly industrialising West Riding, and the North Riding, which is a large open area with a, a number of wealthy market towns uh, in the middle of the 19th century. And these developments are in part influenced by the very different traje trajectories of social and economic development around the county. So the West Riding becomes increasingly industrialised and urbanised in the first half of the century, bringing hundreds of thousands of people into large towns and cities where they lived, worked and played together. Bradford, for example, went from being a town of 13,000 in 1801 to 100,000 in 1851, with all the attendant pros and cons that that brought. These conditions, thousands of young men living in close proximity and working uh, and not working the same hours, provided intensely fertile ground in which large amounts of cricket could be played regularly in increasingly competitive style. However, Sheffield's dominance within cricket in the Old West Riding, which was evident from the 1820s and became even stronger after 1855 when the best and the most expensive ground in Yorkshire was built at Bramall Lane, created tensions with other major towns which had their own cricket traditions and for periods the facilities and the finances to host important games successfully. So the local, strong local pride which grew up in towns like Leeds and Bradford and Huddersfield and Dewsbury manifested itself in civic architecture and public parks and other amenities, but it also showed itself in pride in their ability to host significant cricket matches on well-appointed grounds, which each had demonstrated they could do successfully at various times from the 1840s onwards. The Bradford Cricket Club, for example, hosted a number of very successful visits of the All England eleven. The financial reality of cricket by the 1860s meant that such clubs also wanted and indeed needed to host major profit-making county games and not be saddled with loss-making contests against lesser county sides, which for some time was all the Sheffield-based and, frankly, Sheffield-biased Yorkshire County Cricket Club committee would offer. So the Sheffield authorities, many of whom were actually the same people who ran Yorkshire County Cricket Club, needed to host the most financially profitable county matches in the town because of their own financial responsibilities uh, for the new Bramall Lane ground. Thus we see a combination of civic pride and financial necessity encourage the leaders of cricket in a number of towns in the West Riding 
to resist efforts by Sheffield to entirely monopolise county cricket and to press with varying degrees of strength for 30 years for changes in the arrangements which had developed. At the same time, the, play, the pace and intensity of modernisation which created the climate in the West Riding in which a strongly competitive, high-quality cricketing scene developed was much less present in the North and East Ridings, which had fewer people and longer distances between towns. Yet the north of the county, in particular, still had its own strong tradition of cricket going back to the turn of the 19th century, which had ebbed and flowed and was based around York and small number of prosperous towns. So places like Thirsk and Borough Bridge and Scarborough uh, on, the, on the screen uh, now, um, and Beedale and Ripon just over the riding boundary, had at times some of the strongest teams in the county, even if the game was not played on the same scale and with the same intensity. Dissatisfaction here, and to a lesser extent in the East Riding, where development was restricted by the small and even more dispersed rural population, at the exclusion of their cricketers from the county team and the lack of county matches that they could host, meant there, was, there also existed resistance to the pretensions of a county club which was always likely to ignore or downplay their interests. And backed by a number of aristocrats, in particular Lord Lonsborough, who had his own interest in cricket and probably had social reasons for not wishing to be subordinate to the middle-class decision-makers in Sheffield, there developed at times a loose alliance of opposition to the Yorkshire County Cricket Club. And this alliance came together at the time of the birth of Yorkshire County Cricket Club in 1863 with a failed attempt to form an alternative York-based county club. It was revived again in the form of a Yorkshire United County Cricket Club, which spluttered on rather briefly and ineffectively in the mid-1870s. It found further voice in the 1880s, with the pressure on the county committee in 1882, which led them to make some concessions, concessions on committee representation and fixtures. And it stimulated the creation of the feeble North Riding County Cricket Club in the middle of the 1880s. And none of these were particularly effective, but there were signs of ongoing and strongly felt dissatisfaction with Sheffield domination of Yorkshire County Cricket. And such sentiments worked against a united and representative county club. Ultimately, however, all these efforts of those advocating change were undermined by a lack of quality when alternative county sides took to the field and by the divisions and disagreements between representatives of it, of it. Many appeared actually unwilling or unable really to put their case very strongly for reform, often just falling back on the line that they simply wanted to help find new players from their area for the existing county side. So the intermittent on-field success of the Yorkshire Eleven in the 1870s and particularly in the early 1880s albeit mixed with periods of depressing failure, meant that the Yorkshire County Committee was never under consistent pressure to reform for many years. The demonstrably poorer standards of the, uh, the cricket grounds away from Sheffield, at least until the early 1880s in the case of Bradford and the early 1890s in the case of Leeds, also meant that defenders of the status quo always had a credible case that arrangements in other clubs were simply not good enough to avoid embarrassing the county club. In the end, though, it was not the building of better venues such as on the screen now at Headingley, or the persistence of the voices of protest that led to the changes agreed in 1892 and introduced the following year. Instead, the woeful performances on the cricket field by a substandard Yorkshire team in the late 1880s and early 1890s meant that the existing county arrangements could no longer be defended as likely to lead to a successful Yorkshire County Cricket Club at any time soon. While protecting its predominance and financial position, as had always been the case, Sheffield men agreed to reforms which made the club more representative of the county as a whole. This finally helped to unleash the resources of the whole county and channeled them more effectively towards sporting success. So it was against this long and complex background 
that in the late 1880s, Lord Hawke, as captain of Yorkshire, removed from the side those men who were deemed to be undermining, undermining the discipline of the team through alleged heavy drinking, and developed a strong cricketing culture that was competitive, was pr professional, and was fiercely plowed, proud of the ability of a club to rely on local resources. These were traits which we can see in cricket played since the 1820s in Yorkshire, but really starts to come together now. Less reliant on amateur cricketers than other county clubs, and with a strong pipeline of new professional talent generated by the growing league structure, Yorkshire County Cricket Club became a powerful force in the English game and was synonymous with a hard-nosed and effective approach to winning matches. Well-drilled with better pay and rewards, albeit some of the money held back and invested in a very paternalistic manner, and more disciplined on and off the field. Such cricket had widespread appeal in the county amongst people increasingly schooled in or observers of competitive local cricket and its heroes, myths and traditions were built up and celebrated by a press which had devoted considerable attention to the game for decades and which derived considerable commercial benefits from reporting on a game that was uh, by now uh, in the truest sense taken seriously. So the final point I want to make uh, is to highlight the importance of the extraordinary stamina and resilience of a small group of working class men who played a hugely important role in the development of Yorkshire and England cricket, which has largely been forgotten. And I'm going to focus on uh, Tom Emmett, who was a mill hand from Halifax, who was born in 1841, uh, Isaac Hodgson, a factory overlooker from Bradford, who was born in 1828, and William Slynn, a scissor grinder from Sheffield, who was born in 1826. All three played for Yorkshire in the 1860s. Emmett actually played for England in the first test match against Australia in 1877. All three died in difficult circumstances after serious illnesses. Uh, my biography of Emmett was published by the Association of Cricket Statisticians last year, uh, and I'm currently finalising a life of Hodgson and Slynn, who are considered to be the first great Yorkshire bowling partnership. And in my view, all three played a hugely important role in popularising cricket in the 19th century. So the best known is Tom Emmett. Uh, in 1904, when he died, an obituary concluded there's no more interesting personality in connection with Yorkshire County cricket than the late Tom Emmett. No member of the 11 was more popular with the crowd than the genial Tom, and yet there was no member who took the game more seriously or played more unselfishly. And for 40 seasons, from the late 1850s to the late 1890s, Tom Emmett brought to life a game of cricket at all levels with his ability, both with the bat and the ball, and often merely by his presence on the field. And he set records, but he also played with a spirit and enthusiasm that people enjoyed, so that even 20 years after his Yorkshire debut, the Leeds Mercury could call him the most popular professional in England. Yet Emmett was more than just a genial personality. He was one of the most significant figures in English cricket in the 19th century, a man who linked the period of the early days of commercial cricket that I've highlighted uh, earlier in my talk um, to the time when Test and Crown cricket was well established in the national sporting calendar. And whatever might be said about the quality of cricket during the period from the 1860s to the late 1880s, Emmett had an exceptional record as a bowler. He took over 1,200 wickets as an average of under 13 for Yorkshire, starting in a period when there was limited county programme. Comparisons are difficult to make across the generations, but for more than 25 years, Emmett took wickets in large quantities in decent quality cricket matches at very low cost. In the 1860s, he once took 16 first-class wickets in an afternoon for Yorkshire, a remarkable feat, uh, regardless of the weakness of the opposition. Uh, in the 1870s, only one other player scored 4,000 runs and took over 400 wickets in English first-class cricket, and that was W.G. Grace. And in the 1880s, Emmett had his most successful season as a bowler at the age of nearly 45. 
For Yorkshire, he provided stability, quality and backbone to a county side which, as I've explained in some detail, experienced highs and lows during the 30-year period from the formation of the club to the turning point of 1893. But Emma also has a wider role in popularising the game. For a time, he was one of the most important and effective of the so-called given men, and these were professionals who were engaged to help the local sides that took on the travelling 11s, such as the All England 11, uh, which I've as I said, it was so important in popularising the game in the 19th century. And Emmett's role was to bolster the teams of 20 or more local cricketers who took on the All-Stars, ensuring that this form of cricket could be a worthwhile and, importantly, financially viable spectacle by lasting all three days. One historian of the game has written that it's impossible to exaggerate the value of the touring 11s to the development of the game. But what's usually forgotten is that without men like Emmett, and indeed Isaac Hodgson and William Slynn also being willing and able to travel, often alone, up and down the country throughout the summer and then perform virtually unaided for the district team against some of the best players of the day. These contests would have been far too one-sided to have had any appeal and cricket's development would have been much slower and possibly quite different. So Emmett was thus a really significant figure in the new world of Victorian commercial sport. He made people want to part with their money to see him play cricket and he exploited the opportunities presented to a working man by the new age of mass entertainment, perhaps as much as any contemporary did. He worked and he practised hard, travelling long distances at home and abroad to play. And uh, I estimate that he probably travelled around 200,000 miles throughout his professional career. He put up with living away from home and his family for long periods, and in return, I guess, he was lauded by the press. Uh, he made a reason reasonable living uh, and he saw the world. In 1878, Emmett was appointed Yorkshire captain uh, for uh, four or five years. Uh, he was the last professional to perform this role until the 1960s. He was a unique personality, both positive and humorous, at a time when many professionals had reputations for being dour and very cautious. And when he was too old to play at the highest level, he found people were keen to pay him to pass on his wisdom for a further decade or more. He was actually, uh, for six or seven years, the cricket professional at rugby school, where he coached the future England captain, P.F. Warner. Yet for all he appeared to be having fun, Emmett took the game very seriously because it was his livelihood and he had a large family with six children to provide for. And this may help to explain his gruelling schedule, which must have taken its toll. To take just one season as an illustration, that of 1869, when Emmett was an established member of the Yorkshire side and also appeared for and against the All England Eleven all over the country, he travelled an estimated minimum of 4,000 miles between May and September. And by recreating his season game by game, it's quite possible to see he was away from home for long periods and he frequently played back-to-back -back matches requiring overnight or Sunday travel, such as from when he played one day in Chesterfield and the next day in Glasgow. Between the 14th of June and the 7th of July, for example, he played on 20 out of 24 days. In the late 1870s and early 1880s, Emmett had several opportunities to earn significant additional sums by touring abroad. For each of the three winters, um, in the five-year period between, uh, I think it was 1877 and 1882, he travelled all the way to Australia uh, on three occasions, uh, for which he received around £200, a sum he could not have earned at home, which probably more than doubled his annual earnings those years. Emmett's tour of Australia with Alfred Shaw in 1881-82 provided a winter of great excitement, but also of toil. Sailing west to New York rather than via the Suez Canal route, side set off on a 3,000 mile train journey to the west coast. They stopped off for a game in St Louis after a 36 hour 1,000 mile railway journey and then took the train for the west coast 
crossing the Mississippi River and the Sierra Nevada, and arriving in San Francisco after traveling for five and a half days. The journey across America by train at that time, of course, had only been possible for around a decade when Emmett made the journey, and it remained challenging and not without risk. And then, of course, after that, there was just the matter of crossing the Pacific Ocean and getting to Australia before then starting a heavy program of cricket. Emmett took his contractual obligations seriously because he knew that his was a precarious lifestyle. Early on in his Yorkshire cricket career, he saw illness abruptly end the life of his colleague Isaac Hodgson. Emmett also enjoyed the game because he knew what life away from cricket was like, having worked 14 hours a day from an early age in a mill and not played for Yorkshire until he was 24. He knew that whatever the stresses and strains of the cricket professional, other people had a much more demanding, dangerous and mundane existence, with few of the pleasures and opportunities that he enjoyed. Cricket brought him respect, attention and the patronage of many people well outside the normal social circles of a working class man from Halifax. For all his connections, however, Emmett suffered from the slights that Victorian society routinely presented to a working man. Only appointed as Yorkshire County captain in the absence of a gentleman, as the minutes uh, put it, he was not permitted to move everywhere in the Bramall Lane pavilion because his pass would not allow it. Although he was the Yorkshire captain, he had to stand aside for the far less able Reverend E.S. Carter, a Cambridge Blue and an amateur, as captain on several occasions in 1878 and 1881, when Carter was in the side, including on one occasion when it would appear Yorkshire simply did not want to be represented by a working-class professional at a smart banquet one evening during the game. Emmett was preceded by two other remarkable individuals, William Slynn and Isaac Hodgson, whose contribution to the development again is also long forgotten. They both played for top Yorkshire club sides in the 1850s and appeared for Yorkshire in the early 1860s. Both, uh, importantly, were also engaged as given men to play for local sides against all England. Uh, and this was a way in which they came to uh, um, prominence and were given exposure to the top players of the day. In exchanging a routine working life for professional sport, both Hodgson and Slynn found their lives were also shaped by the same three significant pressures, the constant travel, relentless exertion on the field of play, and the very ambiguous social status associated with being a noted professional cricketer. And during the 1860s, I estimate that Hodgson travelled around 4,000 miles each summer, including in 1863, for example, five return trips to London. The bulk of the games were in Yorkshire, but there were also regular trips to the northeast and to Scotland. And such travel frequently came at the end of a long day of bowling with a five or six o'clock finish, the players then often travelling overnight uh, to begin next day many miles away or travelling on a Sunday in order to start a fresh game on the Monday morning. Such travelling would obviously also almost certainly have been third class uh, and a number of contemporaries commented on the, uh, uh, the, the, the painful experience of sitting and trying to sleep on hard wooden seats um, which often meant that many of the players were so tired that they almost fell asleep whilst in the field the following day. Once at the match, Slynn and Hodgson made long, physically demanding contributions to almost all games. They frequently bowled all day against the All-Stars of the All-England 11 and the United England 11 over three days, clocking up more than 50 to 70 overs and innings. And again, like Emmett, um, they often played matches back-to-back -back, uh, for weeks on end. So, for an example, in 1863, Hodgson appeared in six three-day games in the first 20 days of September. The third factor which shaped their lives, like it had for Emmett, uh, was their experience of the, the ambiguous social status of a professional cricketer. In Bradford, Hodgson was a well-known figure, uh, referred to um, frequently as our townsman, um, and a man whose success was praised and celebrated for more than a decade. In Sheffield, Slynn's name was a regular feature in local papers, his contributions to the town's reputation as a cricketing centre justly highlighted. 
Elsewhere, though, their performances could be strangely unremarked. In London, both were just two of the many northern professionals meriting no special attention. As professional bowlers, they were the game's workhorses, paid employees, simply engaged to undertake the hard task of delivering accurately for hour after hour on rough wickets against some of the best batsmen in England. They were paid and deployed as servants of the clubs that engaged them. No doubt they were fated at some grounds, provided with meals and drinks, and might leave with the results of a collection on the ground if they uh, performed particularly well. But it was a transitory and tiring existence, affected by the vagaries of the weather and the train network and personal form. And it was an exhausting existence, which in the case of Hodgson, continued right up to his death, aged 39, uh, from TB in 1867. Seeing how unwell he was, uh, a lot of effort was made in the uh, Bradford area to raise money for him. Um, and when he died, Bradford Cricket Club erected um, the stone um, headstone that we see here, his grave in, in Skullmore Cemetery in Bradford. He was clearly a respected man locally. Um, and I think it's interesting looking at the, um, the three uh, graves of uh, three men that I've talked about, um, Emmett, Slynn and Hodgson. I think it's noticeable that uh, Hodgson was the, the one player who was still in the public eye at the time of his death. Uh, and uh, his passing was marked far more significantly than were those of Emmett um, as an unmarked grave and Slynn as a very small um, stone which doesn't mention his name at all, uh, who died, both of the latter two died many years after they disappeared from view. The rapid development of cricket in the 1850s in Yorkshire provided the wide range of opportunities for talented men like Emmett, Slynn and Hodgson to fulfil their potential as sportsmen and find new ways to earn a living. The increased popularity of the game and the demonstration of how it could be played by the touring sides encouraged many new clubs to pay men to play, play for them and to coach them. All three men made significant contributions to the difficult birth of Yorkshire County Cricket Club in the early 1860s as it began to play regular first-class cricket. Without Slynn and Hodgson and Emmett, Yorkshire would not have provided credible opposition to more established counties. It was their bowling which provided a number of early victories and ensured that the club could compete. But their significance for English cricket is wider. Quite simply, the ability and the willingness of all three to travel the country and to bowl for hours against the best players of the day helped the English game to develop into a popular form of entertainment. Without them, the All England Eleven and the United England Eleven would not have been so successful in the late 1850s and 1860s. Without these sides, English cricket would have developed differently. Thank you. Um, so as I said, that was the last seminar of this term, but not the last podcast of this summer. Um, during the summer break, we'll bring you a series of shorter podcasts. Some of you might be glad to know that there, there is some shorter <laughs> podcasts coming up, um, featuring interviews with uh, historians researching sport history. Um, there'll also be some podcasts from the Society's Conference in Liverpool, so that'll be a good chance to listen to... Uh, some really experienced sports historians talking about their work, but also a chance to hear from young up-and-coming researchers from around the country and from around the world. And um, we'll also be bringing you some features on the BSSH's other activities, such as the Society's Journal, Sports in History. If you want to find out anything more about those um, events or journals or anything else that the BSSH do does, where can you find out what the BSSH does, Raf? Well, Jeff, you can visit our website, which is www.sportinhistory.org, and you can also find us on Twitter by searching for British Society of Sports History on Twitter. Great. Um, now, the next podcast is going to be a very exciting podcast. 
because uh, I'll actually be talking to Raf. Um, some of you may know that Raf is not just uh, one of the leading uh, sports historians in this country, but she also covers women's cricket more generally as a journalist. Um, so tell us what you're up to this week, Raf. As well, a journalist, that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's the start of the Women's Ashes, which I'm really excited about. Um, England going up against Australia. Um, so the Women's Ashes is a um, multi-format series. Um, so it starts off with, with three ODIs, then there'll be one test in the middle, and then it finishes with three T20s. Um, so, yeah, it's the, it's the first ODI um, tomorrow, um, as we're recording this. Um, so, um, yeah, it's going to be a really great series. And I think England v Australia... Um, holds just as much excitement in the women's game as it does in the men's game. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. Um, and I'll be talking to Raph about her work as a journalist, but uh, as we are the Sports in History podcast, I'll be more particularly talking to her about her PhD work, which was a history of women's cricket in England. Um, Tell us in a nutshell what your thesis was about, Raph. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I think um, there's been very little written about the history of women's cricket, um, and I guess women's sport more generally is probably included in that, um, although that is slowly changing. Um, so I see my work as kind of being situated within this new sort of rise of women's sports history, mm. um, and it was the first ever sort of comprehensive history of women's cricket um, in England. Um, and uh, the PhD focused on just the period since 1945, um, but I'm bringing a book out uh, with Peter Lang. Um, hopefully that will be coming out in a few months' time, and that was, that's been extended across the whole period of women's cricket, so going back a bit further as well. Um, so, yeah, that's what I've been up to. Great. So we'll be talking about cricket history, but we'll also be talking about methodology. So um, how do you uh, create history from oral testimony? And we'll be looking at women's history more generally. I think there's kind of a theme running through these first few podcasts. We're very keen to cover more women's history in sport um, as part of the seminar and also part of the BSSH's outputs as well. So look out for the interview with Raf in the next podcast, which you can download via the BSSH website or subscribe to on iTunes. But now let's go back to Jeremy's Q&A at the IHR with questions from the audience. Hi, um, thank you, Jeremy. Very good talk. Um, I was interested at the end, you know, this sort of dynamic of the working class, um, you know, cricketers who didn't, who may have, who were, you know, treated as servants for the um, professional, the amateur batsmen. But why, so I think in football, um, a professional football association grew up reasonably quickly and there was a sense of, you know, agitation for some representation reasonably early. And that seemed to take much longer in cricket. Was there any sort of sense of, oh, we should be making some kind of union here? Was there any, any of that dynamic at all? Um, that's interesting. Um, it took a long time for, I think, for, 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 for cricketers to um, uh, develop any kind of, of, of union. I think, I think part of it is a sort of the strange... Um, mix that cricket is, which is a seam game played by individuals. Um, I also think um, what's actually really clear from um, what I was talking about in terms of Tom Emmett and William Slynn and Isaac Hodgson, those are men who are engaged as individuals. So um, they are, they are um, professionals for uh, their local club, so they're engaged uh, by their local club to play. Um, they uh, are engaged by 
um, other local clubs for the purposes of supporting their local 22 to take on the All England 11. So they are again engaged as individuals. Uh, and I guess in terms of um, the, 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 the county club, they're also engaged as individuals. Indeed, if you look at the mini books of Yorkshire County Cricket Club, um, you know, they're paid, uh, individual players are played dif paid differently. So I think there's something, um, you know, there's something definitely uh, in that, in the sense that these are individual players who um, uh, do um, uh, pull together a, a, a sort of a, a career and a, a programme of, 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 of different matches. Uh, and so you see somebody like Emmett playing for a variety of different um, clubs at different levels throughout the season. So they're, they're kind of stitching together a, a, uh, a sort of a programme of, of, of work for themselves. Um, in the 1860s, in the mid-1860s, you do get um, the, um, those five uh, Yorkshire professionals who um, do sort of uh, um, group together and uh, don't uh, want to play against Surrey for a variety of reasons, and uh, the, the Yorkshire uh, club doesn't play them. Uh, so I think there's a, uh, there was a sort of strong resistance from, from um, the cricketing authorities to, um, to combat that kind of um, you know, combination. So I think it's probably a, a mix of both. In a sense, you know, the game encourages, encourages people to uh, pursue a sort of individual career. And then I think also for a long time there was a, a lot of um, uh, you know, attempts to, to, to sort of challenge that kind of combination. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it doesn't really happen until the 20th century and well into the, into the 20th century. Yeah. Freelancers don't unionise. Exactly, yeah. Okay, I've got a question. I don't really know anything about, actually, I know nothing about the history of cricket. <laughs> so uh, when you were looking through the newspapers, and um, this is maybe a little bit of a question for Raf as well, um, did you come across much reference to women playing cricket and if there wasn't so much reference for women playing cricket at that time and it just wasn't being reported on because it wasn't maybe being gambled on in the same way that men's cricket was? Um, I mean, the answer, right, the answer is, is, is no in the books I've been talking about mm -hmm. and yes in the third book, which is up on the screen now, A Game Sustained, which uh, is looking at the impact of the Great War on cricket in Yorkshire um, between 1914 and 1920. Um, I have to say, in terms of looking in Victorian newspapers, I do not re remember any reference to mm. women playing cricket. Um, in the work I did for the, uh, the book on the First World War, um, there are there's several pages uh, in there about the development of um, women's cricket. Um, it cer certainly surfaced in terms of um, uh, well, there's a number of number of number of uh, contexts, I guess. Um, there was certainly uh, it was used for sort of um, uh, nurses playing with wounded soldiers in some of the military hospitals in Leeds. Um, there's a photograph in the book of a women's uh, cricket team uh, in 1917, which um, was um, playing a game uh, in order to generate um, money to buy. Uh, things to send out to troops at the front. Um, you also get uh, cricket clubs um, growing around some of the um, big companies in places like Sheffield and Leeds 
where there was, particularly in the back end of the, the war, 1917-1918, there was a much more effort made to try and encourage men and women uh, with recreation. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was designed to try and uh, um, uh, improve health and well-being um, as the war can, carried on. So um, there, there, were, or there are also um, early... Um, Women's cricket clubs, 1917-1918, um, attached to a number of clubs in, say, in the Bradford area and so on. Um, so I think the First World War did give a stimulus to, to, to um, women's cricket. And as I say, that in, in terms of my research, which previously was from the sort of 1820s through to the 1890s, I don't remember ever coming across any. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but it either wasn't reported um, or I just didn't, didn't see it. But certainly... Um, once I was researching the First World War, it does become um, much more, um, much more common, uh, and I think it's the beginnings of there was quite a lot of women's cricket in the twenties and thirties, and I think the First World War, World War did give um, quite a lot of women exposure to the game, um, from what I could see, uh, you know, in and how it was reported uh, in the uh, newspapers. Yeah, I think that reflects the the picture nationally of that in kind of post-war yeah. uh, decade, a couple of decades being a boom period. Certainly. Yes. Um, I was sort of interested in this idea of Yorkshire developing um, and cricket helping that idea. Um, you, know, sort of, you have that theory of peasants into Frenchmen in the 19th century in France, and you might sort of see this as labourers into Yorkshiremen in the 19th century in Yorkshire because of the, the specific geography of the county. So could you maybe talk about the way in which cricket, I think for people who, do, who aren't from Yorkshire, cricket is part of the... Yorkshire identity, isn't it? Um, is that a self-conscious thing that happens at this time, or is it just something that cricket helps to formulate within the county? Um, or is it there already? I think. I, I mean, what is set out in, set out in the book? Uh, I mean, one of the early chapters are called. I think it's uh, it's called um, the place of the place of cricket, and I think. Um, what I mean by that was, um, I think you you definitely see from the eighteen twenties onwards, um, uh, and then I think particularly from the eighteen eighteen forties, um, you know, a sort of growth in the in the sort of visibility of the game, and a strong sense in which, um, for all sorts of reasons, some of which actually are political, but also um, some of which are kind of you know people advocate sport as, as, as healthy and so on um, I think you start to, you, you start to see um, the game being pushed the game being seen as respectable the game being seen as healthy the game being seen as fun I mean let's not forget we're talking about sport here and it's supposed to be fun and you know it's also a way of you know um, individuals becoming sort of you know uh, locally well known um, you, you, you see it as um, a a sort of um, a, a sort of symbolic and, and and a sign of local pride, and you know, obviously, you you see a lot of sort of local competitions. I think from the eighteen forties, um, some of these sort of competitive spirit becomes much more uh, sort of commercialized, and you start to see um, uh, you know games um, for you know the championship of the county. Um, Kind of all lowercase there, not in a, any sort of formal sense, but but you know the newspapers are reporting on on, on competitions. You you get um, 
organised sweepstake competitions between sort of four or six clubs being played in places like York and so on. Um, quite a lot of money's involved. Um, so again, you know, another sort of driving driving force here. Um, and um, I guess, you know, it as I said in my talk, I think it becomes tied up with, um, you know, local pride uh, and a sense of, of place and a sense that, um, you know, um, uh, we as a newly expanding town are you know we can do things we can you know we've got these parks we've got these amenities we can also host the best players in the country so i think i think there's a, there's a sort of i think particularly in the in the, in the west riding um you, you know you, you see cricket closely associated with this sort of development of a, of, a, of 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 pride in the uh, in 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 the, in the in the cities and towns um i think what i what i noticed as i was doing the research is, is you know you, you've got this this difference between different parts you know you've got the highly urbanized parts but then you've got the the very very rural um part of yorkshire the east the east riding where you know people simply have to travel further in order to be able to you know meet up with other people um there's quite a lot of cricket in hull there's quite a lot of cricket in the north riding in in the sort of middlesbrough area um but um you start just to see the quality of the game is is it develops faster and to a higher standard in areas where there are just a lot more people more closely uh, together so i think that's that was that's the sort of the, i think the the nuanced sort of picture that I, that i sort of picked up from from the research so um there isn't there isn't really one sort of yorkshire um perspective i think the only way you can really understand why the club developed as it did and why it took so long is to actually realize that there's there's these competing um, perspectives and there's quite a lot of sort of animosity between everybody in Sheffield um, and then you know the East Riding and the North Riding feeling as though they're being excluded um, and this sort of works its way through um, uh, as I talked about uh, in the uh, in the presentation. Can I ask a follow-up to that then what if anything is distinctive about Yorkshire cricket both I suppose both um, in the 19th century and Maybe subsequently, if that's not too big a question. Um, I, I'm not sure it's entirely. Uh, uh, well, what's distinctive about Yorkshire cricket is possibly also what's distinctive about Lancashire cricket, uh, and possibly for much of the 19th century and into the 20th century, Nottinghamshire cricket. And by which I'm really saying is northern cricket was actually quite different from southern cricket. Um, it's more professional. Um, there's more intense, more intensely played in in league in leagues, um, and uh, in the case of Yorkshire County Cricket Club, for example, Yorkshire made a lot less use of amateurs. So a lot of southern counties were heavily amateur based. So counties like Hampshire or um, Somerset um, and so on. Um, these were, if you look at, if you if you look at, if you look, for example, if you look at Wisden, um, for um, one of those counties, uh, say, in just before the First World War or just after the Second World War, the, um, the batting averages are really, really long and they're full of amateurs who only played one or two games. You know, maybe when they, uh, if, they, if they were a teacher, for example, at a public school, they only played in the summer holidays. Mm -hmm. If you look at the Yorkshire batting averages, actually there's uh, only maybe about 12 or most of the most of the games were played by the same professionals. Um, Yorkshire Yorkshire for a long time was uh, ten professionals and a captain, an amateur captain, uh, and that that uh, now that continues into the twentieth century and right through to um, 
uh, you know, after the Second World War. So I think there's, you know, Yorkshire cricket is, is, is distinctive in the being heavily professionalised, fed by the leagues which had grown up, which were very strong, very competitive, um, far fewer amateurs. Um, and um, I, think, I think what you see in the 19th century is a kind of, there, there are the myths that build up. Um, uh, and I think what, you know, once, they, once they sort of break through all this sort of noise that goes on um, between the 1860s and 1890s where you know, the full power of the, of, of the resources of Yorkshire, and of course there's a lot of people there, uh, only when that full power is sort of unleashed, then they start to win the championship all the time. Uh, and that's sort of the myths build up. Uh, and uh, you know, it's a very sort of self-confident, um, and lots of people who aren't from Yorkshire would say, you know, completely overbearing. Um, Can I follow up on that, Joan? Because um, what research I've done into Yorkshire cricket is on the 20th century, and I was struck by the continuities and connections between generations. Like, for example, um, I interviewed a man called uh, Brian Stott, who was, uh, as you well know, a player in the late 50s, and I was struck by how he, he recorded a conversation at, in the dressing room at Scarborough with a man called Wilfred Rhodes, one of the greatest players of all time, who started with Yorkshire in the 1890s. So what, what I mean to ask is two things. First, um, uh, can you say something about how as these decades of success went on, it became like a uh, sort of powerful factor in its own right that weighed down opponents before they even went on the field? And secondly, how come it all went wrong around 1970? And it's never come right since. <laughs> um, I think I think I think you're right, Mark. I think there's 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 a definite sense of sort of you know myths and and sort of traditions growing around um, the way the game is played and the and and the the county club, which probably has weighed down successive generations unless they've actually been able to add to it um, uh, I think um, there's a lot of interest in the history of the game um, amongst successive generations of, of players I think I think they're, you know, they're cognizant of, of what has gone before um, and, 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 and you know and if you if, 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 if you you know you say you've spoken to to, to, to one individual and they can sort of confirm that I think that's you know I think I'm, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's the case um, I'm sure it's he- I'm sure it's healthy as long as it's sort of it doesn't become overpowering um, and I have absolutely no idea whether the you know contemporary players indeed you know contemporary cricketers who play for Yorkshire who aren't necessarily from Yorkshire um, whether it actually matters matters to them I mean it's interest it's interesting that um, I have seen interviews with 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 players who have uh, Yorkshire County players more recently who've said uh, and 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 at other times in the past who've said well actually it's mainly the crowds that are particularly obsessed for example with the Yorkshire Lancashire rivalry um, and I guess um, you know I'm sure players who aren't from Yorkshire or Lancashire will probably you know appreciate that it's quite a big fixture but they probably also regard other games as equally big whereas the crowd you know I think for for those of us from are from Yorkshire, then that is the big that is the big one, um, but I think it's all bound up with this sort of idea of myth and tradition, and you know that's a lot of what sports about. It's that kind of you know 
remembering the history uh, and, and, and sort of record, recording it. Um, you touched on religion a couple of times during, during your paper. And I was just wondering, you know, what is the relationship between religion and cricket, given that cricket is often played on a Sunday? What, what relationship does the Methodist community in Yorkshire, which is very strong, I know, still strong, believe? What's their relationship with the game? I, I'm not sure I can answer the, uh, that specific question. Um, I mean, the book, uh, you know, as, as I said in my talk, I mean, the book does, um, uh, does draw attention to the fact that, there, that certainly, um, you know, from the 18, through the 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s, and I guess longer, than, you know, beyond that, um, there are, you know, serious attempts made to clamp down on cricket being played on the Sabbath. Uh, and it was taken, you know, it was taken seriously, and and and, you know, groups of boys were being dragged up in front of uh, magistrates and, uh, and and told that this shouldn't happen. Um, you know, it was a um, clubs were turfed off their um, turfed off their grounds in some cases, um, you know, by um, landowners who who didn't want the game to be played on a Sunday. Um, so I think it was a you know it was a. You know, it was a factor in the way in which the game grew up, um, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think one, without being very specific, I think I think possibly um, I think I actually do allude to it in the book. One of the factors that may have may have um, uh, slowed down the development of the game in um, more rural areas and uh, you know in in particular out of the way. Areas was a more conservative tradition in 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 the nineteenth century. You know, I think I think, um, and that may be associated with 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 with, with religion. Um, so it kind of slows down the the sort of you know the the pace of the growth of the game, and it's it's a sort of you know I think it's a factor factor there. And it's you know it's less the case in in in, in urban areas where sort of modernisation and just sort of things changing more quickly um, may have helped to sort of break some of those some of those. Equally, though, of course, um, you know, lots of cricket clubs were associated with the church, yeah. uh, and and cricket for um, you know generations of uh, people involved with the church, um, uh, clergymen, and so on was was seen as you know a way of well, a form of social control. I guess it was a you know it was a respectable thing to do. It was you know it, 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 in Victorian. Uh, lots of Victorians thought that you know uh, cricket taught all kinds of important um, you know sort of manners and respect for others and discipline and patience and all these kind of things. I mean, you know, there's a whole literature in Victorian um, uh, newspapers and books and so on um, of um, you know a sort of rather moralistic view of cricket um, and, and and how it how it was really important to uh, to get. Uh, um, Young boys involved with it because it would curb all kinds of uh, you know immorality and uh, criminal behaviour. So I mean, there's a strong relationship between between cricket and religion, which sort of gets picked up in in in, in the book. You mentioned um, Yorkshire cricket crowds just now. There's not been a huge amount written about kind of cricket crowds and the history of um, cricket in the in the I guess both in the kind of academic literature and in the popular literature. I think is that yeah. something that you that you touch on? You think yeah, there's a chapter um, in the book on crowd, oh, the crowds. Okay. Um, there's a chapter. I didn't know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a chapter. There's a chapter called "Watching the Game," which is about cricket crowds uh, in the nineteenth century, uh, and um, 
I found it one of the most interesting um, uh, chapters to write. And in fact, um, I'm currently writing about the 1920s at the moment, and I've got a chapter about the cricket crowd in the 1920s. Um, because, um, you know, I think um, in the end, there's only sort of, you know, 22 players on the field, but uh, there's, mm. you know, a lot of people mm. um, who are uh, also present, uh, you know, watching the game. Um, so what I, I mean, what I was interested in was trying to sort of get some sense as to what, what, what was it that attracted people to watch cricket? Mm. Um, also, um, the chapter covers the sort of, you know, an attempt to, to tap into a lot of the... Um, the, the sort of coverage of 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 the uh, of the game to try and understand the sort of composition of the crowd, um, and actually by the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties, um, a lot of Yorkshire newspapers send reporters into the crowd, and they they kind of they give some really sort of um, really rich um, uh, descriptions of the kind of people that that that, uh, that that were attracted there, and there's some you know some really interesting uh, interesting descriptions of different types of different types of people. Um, there is. Um, I was also interested in the sort of arrangements for actually sort of getting into the game. Um, you know, turnstiles start to be, um, appear at grounds in the 1870s. Um, you know, there's um, from the 1840s onwards, when, you know, if you're going to have, if, well, it's from the 1820s, I guess, but particularly from the 1840s, if you're going to have commercial, uh, if you're going to have matches which uh, require people to pay, you have got to enclose the ground, mm. um, and you've got to have you know ways of letting only people in who um, you know have paid to, to, to get in. So you know you start. You, you, there's no way that a, a cricket match can be financially viable if you can just have anybody uh, wandering in. So you know grounds do get enclosed, um, and um, as I said, turnstiles are, are introduced. Um, and then I think um, what's really interesting, and uh, it goes back to the point I made, I think right at the beginning of the talk about um, uh, news, Victorian newspapers being really detailed. It's actually, there's quite a lot of interesting sort of um, descriptions of disruptive crowds, um, you know, occasions when, you know, players or teams were barracked by, by crowds. Um, was a really interesting um, reference to a, a Yorkshire versus Kent match in, in 1881. Um, when um, the Yorkshire team um, and the um, the Kent amateurs came out of um, one pavilion uh, where they were um, where they changed, but the Kent professionals came out of another pavi another pavilion, and the crowd and some in the crowd booed this because it was quite obviously discriminatory, um, and that's uh, no, really early and interesting sort of uh, um, um, sort of sort of class consciousness amongst the, amongst the crowd this was seen as a bad thing and yet actually it's until you know 20s and 30s when you know players and amateurs and professionals were, were, were sort of changing in different uh, changing rooms and so on so and I think also what's interesting is um, you know cricket I guess is often seen as a very sort of you know staid um, respectable game but actually there's quite a lot of examples if you look deeply enough of you know cricket matches being disrupted, um, crowd trouble, um, dissatisfaction amongst the crowd about umpiring decisions, crowds running on to stop matches finishing because their team was going to lose, um, teams being having you know stones and rocks and sods of earth thrown at them as they leave the the ground and so on. So, um, you know, it's actually the, the chapter in the book is is quite a sort of rich picture of of sort of very noisy and irreverent crowds as well as the sort of, you know, the much more sort of um, um, sort of respectable crowd. I mean, I think 
we saw the uh, we saw the sort of uh, Headingley in the eighteen nineties. I mean, uh, you know, I don't think I don't think there was much barracking going on there. Although, you know, um, in the nineteen twenties, Yorkshire cricket crowds, particularly at Sheffield, got a really um, quite a bad reputation for being for for for, for barracking uh, and for being quite aggressive. And there there were. There were certainly so southern teams, uh, Middlesex and, and, and Surrey in particular, there were suggestions that the amateurs from those teams actually didn't like playing in the north of England and they didn't like playing at Sheffield in particular. Um, and there was, there's one or two really interesting uh, examples, 1924 Yorkshire Middlesex, where there is um, quite a, a, con- a lot of controversy, um, which is actually what I'm, the starting point for the book I'm writing about the 20s, um, where incidents on the field generated a lot of barracking and... Um, there was then an MCC inquiry and, and, and various, well, the, the Yorkshire player who was seen to have incited the, the crowd was uh, forced to apologise and, and so on. So I think there's, you know, the crowd's really interesting um, as, a, as a subject. Uh, and I think Victorian newspapers, for all the reasons that I, I mentioned in my talk, um, you know, they give the opportunity to, to sort of pick up a bit of a sense as to, of, of, you know, to, to the size of the crowd, the composition, uh, and uh, and also the way they behaved. Okay. Sort of following up on that, I was interested in Scarborough. When does Scarborough develop as a as a festival, um, and what does this say about the commercialisation of cricket and uh, this kind of linkage between resort towns and cricket teams visiting? So 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 um, uh, cricket. Um, I think Scarborough Cricket Club starts in the late eighteen forties. Um, the um, the festival sort of starts in the middle of the 1870s um, and it's linked, it's associated with, you know, um, I guess, wealthy um, uh, people being in a resort and wanting to, to play. Mm. It, it, then, it then develops from sort of 1876 onwards uh, and becomes a sort of a regular series of matches and, um, you know, sort of certainly by the, by the end of the, by the, by the 80s and 90s and so on, it's a, you know, it's a sort of regular feature of the English game and it's the sort of you know it's the sort of like the sign of the season coming to an end for uh, and you know big games there the the MCC play regularly uh, there's all, there's usually three three overseas, sort of county yeah. matches at overseas the end. teams that always play at Scarborough as well yeah and in the 20th century then it sort of takes on that sort of uh, you know the 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 the, the, uh, the visiting uh, overseas team would end the season there and uh, and that went on until I guess the 1980s and I mean I, I remember you know, going to, to, to Scarborough and in the in the nineteen seventies and and seeing um, seeing you know say the Australians in nineteen seventy two or um, or the West Indies in in, in seventy three and these these teams have been in England since since April and yet and they've been they played off you know a five five test series or something and they in those days of course they were played against all the counties so they've been playing pretty much you know week in week out since since April uh, and you know they may have had a they may have been really successful. Uh, or they may have had a really bad time, and yet they were still expected to, to sort of you know, play probably a, a three day match and a one day match at Scarborough. Um, they often put out a sort of you know some of the players who hadn't really featured in the uh, in the Test series, um, but I think it's a sign of a sign of a particular, you know, it's probably in the seventies that that sort of thing was coming to an end, mm-hmm. uh, and um, which in a way you know it's sad in a way, but. No, it was quite a lot to ask those players um, who had been in, you know, overseas for what four or five months. You know, probably just thinking, I'd quite like to go home actually. Uh, and then they had to play a festival match, um, and uh, and and sort of show a, you know, show some interest. 
argue that the era of Victorian cricket actually ends in about 1972. I think there are. I think that's. A, I don't think that's an unreasonable. I think that I think there's probably some kind of article to be written yeah. there, uh, <laughs> arguing very strongly that that's the case. Because I think you know. I think you know. It's only when the late 70s with 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 Kerry Packer and the sort of you know, that that, that sort of rupture in the game. Uh, and I think. Um, uh, I think yes, the idea that 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 the, the test teams would be expected to sort of play in these sort of very low-key matches in front of a relatively small crowd um, you know I appreciated it and so did others uh, uh, other teenagers but you know it was it's quite a lot to ask and you definitely wouldn't get it really these, these days not in not in the same sort of manner um, unfortunately well we're interested to see what the future is of uh, Yorkshire County cricket and indeed county cricket uh, given the uh, Onset of the hundred next season, and on that note, <laughs> um, let's wrap up. But thank you very much, Jeremy, for a really interesting paper. So that's it for this week's podcast. And until next time, it's goodbye from us both. Goodbye. goodbye. <laughs>